Hello, and welcome to Accountability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. And uh, we are back in the studio on a wonderful rainy day here, but we have a great guest, uh, Taka Ariga. How are you doing over there, Taka? Great. Thanks for having me back, Paul. Absolutely. Yes. So, as you said, a return guest, and the whole purpose of this podcast is to revisit with you um, how things have gone since you've been at GAO. So, just a reminder for everybody, and actually we'll find the episode number and link it on the webpage, but we did a podcast interview with Taka. It's been, what, a couple years at this point? Yeah, I think almost four years. Yeah. So, you were the first GAO chief data scientist, right? And you started up the Innovation Lab, right? Yes. Okay. So this is kind of, you know, where where are we now? What have you learned? All that kind of fun stuff. Um, so do you mind if we just start off again, just high level, you know, you were, like I said, you were appointed the first chief data officer. What were your expectations going in? And now that you've been there for a while, how is that maybe a little different? Yeah, thanks for that question, Paul. And it's amazing. It's almost four years since I first joined GAO. And initially, I think I had some preconceived notion of how innovation is supposed to work, uh, mm-hmm. maybe exploration of different technology. But as we sort of mature over time, it became really how do we then scale? How do we sustain it going forward? Mm-hmm. Because we don't want to be known just as a tinkerer of novel solution. We want to actually have a measurable impact, not only for GAO, but also by extension uh, to support Congress and the oversight community writ large. And so over the past four years, we have really matured not only our processes, but also our focus. Uh, but, you know, four years in a sort of a government timeline might as well be light speed. Um, so we very much still think of ourselves as a startup organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so agility is an important attribute of what we do. Uh, but again, never a dull day because innovation by definition is about uncertainties and how do we navigate that uncertainties in a way that is uh, institutionally yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. And how about you know your job specifically? I mean, is your primary job the innovation lab, or do you have other duties as assigned, or what? What does the chief data scientist do? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I have dual roles. So as a director of innovation lab, I direct all of the project you know coming out of the innovation lab. So that's you know, a bunch of data science related project, uh, looking at generative AI, looking at various use cases for advanced analytics. Uh, but also a portfolio around technology and, and emerging technology specifically. So looking at extended reality, mm. looking at digital twins, looking at aerial drone, how those uh, kind of activities might be able to support uh, GAOs like SiteVisit, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a chief data scientist, um, you know, the other hat that I wear is really to think through how might uh, we evaluate emerging technology. So for example, you know, how might we evaluate uh, blockchain technology? Right. Um, the in, understanding the inner mechanics of that technology, but also, you know, going back to AI, how does AI actually function? Uh, so when we talk about hallucination, what are the impacts of that kind of behavior, not only to our own use cases, but also as we encountering them in a sort of our evaluation? Right. Um, and, you know, how do we then uh, be able to sort of apply the kind of rigorous audit methodology in a way that satisfy uh, what GAO needs to do? Uh, so it's very much int- uh, sort of intriguing combination of both insight and foresight function. Hmm. And also, you know, not just auditing those technologies, but using the technologies, right? Or yeah. is it is it primarily more one than the other or really just? Both. I mean, I mean that's exactly right. And we yeah. need to be able to unpack how these emerging technology work in a hands-on way. Mm-hmm. But just like any other entities out there, 
our, our hypothesis of why can we adopt these kind of technology for our own use to enhance our own capacity. Uh, but to do that in a setting like GAO is not exactly just, you know, deploy open source software, for example, or walk into Best Buy and buy a couple of a novel uh, tech kit. There are very specific way that we need to integrate these technology in a way that is compatible to, uh, for example, the way that auditors conduct audits. Mm -hmm. um, so we adhere very closely to what we call the generally accepted government auditing standards. Yep, yep. Familiar with that one. <laughs> um, so give us a, I want to get into some like specific technologies, but just some more high level questions for you. Um, so again, over the last four years, you know, your mission was kind of like to, uh, you know, to support GAO and their mission, support Congress and some of their reporting and questions as well. I mean, how would you say, do you f I mean, do you feel like you've advanced that mission? Are there some examples of some, some things you guys have brought forward in that department? Yeah, for sure. I mean, from the early stages, we definitely had some focus around efficiency drivers around use of data science and how emerging technology can accelerate some of these ongoing uh, and recurring oversight engagement that GAO has. Mm -hmm. But over time, we started tackling bigger problems. So, for example, how might identity verification be helpful in reduction of improper payments? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, AI is sort of the defining technology of our decade. Right. How might we think about generative AI in a way that not only allows us to understand behaviors of large language model, but also how might we support that experimentation on use cases mm. uh, in a sort of secure, safe, and appropriate way? Um, you know, we have a series of uh, projects that are sort of built on top of uh, generative AI that GAO has deployed um, within our own infrastructure. Uh, we also have a number of emerging technology looking at, I think, for example, I mentioned extended reality to support site visit, uh, aerial drone to support site visit. Um, but all of these technology usually have a set of novel cybersecurity implications. So there's a visible part of the innovations that we do in terms of capability, in terms of the tech, but the invisible part, you know, how do we unpack the cybersecurity implications? How do we deal with some of these acquisition-related challenges? How do we make sure that we understand the integration form of those technology? Mm -hmm. uh, so those are usually less visible, but just as important for us to address. Otherwise, I think I mentioned this before on the top of the hour, um, I don't want to just be known as a tinkerer of technology, yeah. right? So how do we integrate that from prototype all the way to a production setting Right, um, is uh, sort of that valley of death issue that we we sort of spend a lot of time thinking through. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just like the physicist, it's the engineer. Like how are we going to apply this knowledge to reality, real scenarios? You know, it's not just theory, it's application. Right? That's exactly right. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you an example. We have a project looking at this uh, Federal Single Audit Clearinghouse. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a repository of single audit uh, report has been submitted for the past almost 40 years. It's a wealth of knowledge, um, but right now it's there's not an easy way for an organization to systemically mine that information for trends, patterns, you know, challenging issues. Um, so Innovation Lab is in the process of developing a project that is meant to uh, support GAO mission team on the use of single audit data uh, to support design of audits, for example. You know, if we're able mm -hmm. to identify systemic and persistent issue, those are, uh, I think, uh, you know, topic of focus that could be helpful as we sort of embark on various type of evaluation. 
but the hypothesis is that if it's helpful to GAO, likely this kind of tool will be helpful to the IG community mm-hmm. or state and local partners. And so I think this is the beginning of uh, Innovation Lab starting to think about how we might be able to impact not just within GAO, but also across the, the oversight community writ large with some of our uh, capabilities and, and solutions that we're currently developing. So, yeah, let's jump into some of these technologies. Um, you know, obviously four years ago, you had kind of like a, a set of tools and things that were out there. Things have changed. They changed super rapidly. I mean, generative AI is the buzzword. You know, that's all you hear about these days, but it's very interesting, very enticing. Um, yeah, maybe, I don't know, do you, over the last four years, are the things that have popped up and kind of gone by the wayside or are all of them still pretty much under your radar because they, they do have useful, you know, aspects? I don't know, like RPA versus AI versus, you know, blo- you know blockchain, distributed ledger. I don't know, just throwing things out there. Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. Um, m- maybe I'm a little biased on this particular topic. We tend to choose challenges that are significant and systemic in nature. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there is certainly a lot of opportunity for automation, efficiency kind of gains within GAO. Um, we typically defer that to other parts of GAO to handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, for us, you know, tackling issues around federal fraud, around improper payments, around sort of novel technology like blockchain and how that might impact um, sort of federal management of financial management oversight. Uh, those are the kind of uh, systemic issue that we tend to tackle. Yeah. Um, so your, your questions around, you know, things that may have fallen away, I, I take that a little bit differently in terms of on any sort of issue that we tackle, there's always an element of uncertainty that we have to address. And even if our hypothesis don't work out as it intended, mm-hmm. those are points of learning. Those are points of intersection that our goal is to document them mm-hmm. and share them. So that when we talk about innovation, it's not just a GAO silo conversation. Um, we can sort of share that more broadly. And so, in, you know, I'll, I'll give another example. We have a series of uh, call a white paper that we're in the process of developing mm-hmm. on how uh, different types of machine learning techniques could be appropriately used in audit context. Mm. Right? Um, as you might imagine, the, the oversight community typically is risk averse. And so, um, you know, if we don't really understand the behavior of something like machine learning models, uh, th- there's usually a barrier of entry in terms of how might we be able to sort of in- integrate them. So the first uh, paper that we're in the process of developing is how do we use topic modeling, which is a genre of uh, natural language processing, mm-hmm. to really uh, systematically organize key topic from a large corpus of text data. So um, one particular use case is looking at regulations.gov, where a lot of public comments are being submitted. Uh, but right now, the only way to go through that public comment is first in, first out. You read every single comment. Mm. Some of these comments are really technically relevant. Some of these are perhaps pictures of cats. <laughs> Some of these are perhaps a, a lot less relevant to what we're really trying to focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, but this sort of first in, first out approach is infinitely not scalable. So we want to use whether something like topic modeling can help organize the topics of highest interest, mm-hmm. go through those first uh, before we go through sort of less relevant content. Right. And, but, but to do that, we needed to make sure that not only the technology and the sort of modeling aspects of it is sound, that we can control the parameters and um, uh, the sort of criteria behind it, but going that extra step of documenting the record of analysis, making mm. sure that we do the code review in a way that is methodological 
possible. Right. Uh, those are just sort of the extensions that we do to make sure that something like a machine learning model can be appropriately and perhaps seamlessly integrated in the current audit process. Yeah, that's a very interesting one. I mean, I, I'm, to me, it's almost like I feel it's, do we trust this thing? <laughs> you know, is it really... You know, is it objectively, let's say for that example, so you have a thousand comments on some regulation, for example, you know, what we want it to do is give us, okay, summarize the X, all the relevant ones and tell us, point us to them. And then for the ones that seem totally irrelevant, just summarize those so we can quickly just disposition all this stuff. But is the AI or the, the black box or whatever, the code can we trust it? Is, it? is it really going to do that? Or would it have some kind of weird bias? Or would it, you know, how does this thing work? I mean, is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely right. Um, our ethos is trust but verify. Yeah. Um, yeah. So from GAO perspective, we usually don't like black box of anything unless yeah. we can justify. So we do go through um, a lot of sort of documentation process to make sure that, you know, for example, code review, it's being done line by line by the independent party so that we can replicate those results. Uh, I'll give an example. Uh, as we're developing this uh, white paper around topic modeling, what mm -hmm. we found was depending on the implementation, so if you can use R or you can use Python, mm -hmm. you get slightly different results. Mm. Auditors don't like slightly different results. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we had to go through a lot of sort of triaging process to make sure that, you know, can we create a parity on results? If not, mm. what specific disclaimers do we need to uh, make sure that they're in place? Um, so that the auditors that are using, whether they decided to use R or Python, there's an awareness on not only opportunities, but also limitations of you know, any given technology choice. So it gets really um, sort of detailed, really wonky, really quickly. But our goal is making sure that we cover as much of that uncertainty playing as we can so that there's a level of trust when it comes to the sort of the day-to-day -day auditors that are trying to use. Right. So I could definitely see that, you know, the big buzzword, generative AI, coming up with that. I mean, we've played around some of those models. And like you said, I mean, that's, isn't it basically designed to kind of, you know, generate something creative and new or, or some summary of things from things it reads? So it tends to have different, even that itself would have different results every time you type in a prompt, right? So yeah. how do you use that? I mean, how is that helpful to an audit, for example? That's right. And so part of the Innovation Lab is really unpack the, you know, how does a large language model function. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, at the most basic level, what generative AI does is predict the likelihood of the next word. So mm. if you have a sentence like, roses are red, violets are, mm -hmm. you know, in the sort of most intuitive sense, most people will come up with the word blue because intuitively we're doing a bunch of probabilistic calculation in our head to say blue is the most likely. Mm -hmm. And in, in this, again, in the most simplistic sense, this is what the large language model are designed to do. Mm. But even under that construct, it's able to do some really fantastic um, kind of activity. So, for example, uh, writing a template of email, uh, you know, some you know, documentation that allows you to have a starting point mm -hmm. that you can refine further. Um, but this is also where we get ourselves into trouble you know, as we get into the, the sort of area of hallucination. Right, so we actually, uh, as part of our experimentation, asked one of the large language model, how does Abraham Lincoln feel about GAO's AI accountability framework? Hmm. Of course, this is a silly question, but it's a question that should not exist in any kind of training data. And we just wanted to see what the output looked like. Uh, it turns out, in a very confident way, what that large language model told us is that L Abraham Lincoln hated GAO's AI accountability framework. <laughs> How could it possibly know that? 
And so this is where we were trying to unpack how did it arrive at that output. Yeah. Um, so we're really thinking about, you know, is hallucination just part of the behavior of large language model? If so, is this really more of a digital literacy challenge as opposed to a fault of a large language model? Mm. Um, so making sure that we are addressing the right problem. And then based on that example, we've also thinking about if we were to implement a large language model, of course the auditors won't want to see what was the behind the scene reasoning that arrived at that conclusion mm -hmm. that Abraham Lincoln hated GAO's AI accountability framework. Yeah. And so we're in the process of developing that prototype that illustrates step-by-step all of the thought process behind that kind of output. Um, so, you know, we can also insert additional features like if it doesn't have certain answer, could it make an API call to an uh, internet search engine to identify those specific facts and bring it back in? Would that impact the reasoning? So there's mm -hmm. a lot of work behind the scene that we're trying to do to make sure that something like a large language model is not just an exotic um, technology of the day, but that it can actually serve a very specific and valuable function for GAO, but in a way that is yellow book appropriate. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that one's just fascinating. And, you know, I mean, for folks that, you know, it's basically think chat GPT, if you've heard of that, there's free one out there, people can play with it, right, in theory. So, and but, our approach is a little bit different than yeah. I, perhaps most agencies out there. I know some agencies are struggling to say, do we ban it, do we not ban it? Yeah. Um, our policy is taking the approach of rather than doing a whack-a-mole mm -hmm. on specific use cases, we want to deploy some form of large language model inside our compute infrastructure so mm. that we can control yeah. what prompts goes in, what prompts leave. Um, preferably, they don't leave GAO at all. Um, but we don't want any sensitive information to inadvertently be um, sort of leaving GAO boundary in a way that we don't control the subsequent learning in the sort of a, a generative AI ecosystem. Um, so our goal is to first and foremost uh, deploy pre-trained large language model so that we can control the subsequent reinforcement of that learning on GAO specific content. And then we can also let the smart people of GAO to figure out what some of the appropriate use cases for GAO there might be. And so rather than banning uh, specific use cases, our goal is to enable that kind of safe and secure exploration so that we can get a handle ourselves on what generative AI can and cannot do. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely... What I've seen folks doing is using that controlled inputs, you know, sources in there. I mean, you know, I've seen folks play around. Let's say, let's just drop in the FAR and only ask you questions about the FAR. You know, that's the only source it has. Maybe that makes sense because then you're not really going out to the whole world for all kinds of random other things that don't have anything to do with what you're trying to discover. Right. You know, um, but something else that's interesting, like you said, it also depends on how you ask the question or, you know, like, you know... Uh, people can ask something slightly differently and get slightly different answers or not quite as complete answers. I don't know. It's just, it's just a lot of funny things about, about that tool right now that I'm seeing. You're absolutely right. There is sort of double-edged sword to any technology, and part of our own experimentation is how might we break something like a large language model. Yeah. So, for example, most of the commercial available solution out there won't let you do something that's illegal. Right? Yeah. You can't say, give me a recipe of napalm bomb, for mm -hmm, example, mm -hmm. give you a very specific, like, I'm not allowed to give you that information, I'm just a chatbot, you know. Um, but clever people have, through, you know, clever prompt engineering, mm -hmm. you can get around some of those restrictions. 
And so part of our experimentation is how do we then build that guardrail in a way that maybe there's some bright red line that we will not cross. Yeah. Maybe there's some gray line that uh, what does that boundary look like and how can we make sure that we can mitigate the risk in a way that is acceptable to GAO. And so you're absolutely right. There's always that sort of double-edged sword with any given technology um, and including cybersecurity kind of implications. So our yeah. goal from an innovation lab point of view is just be very clear-eyed about what something like a large language model or extended reality or a, a sort of range of different technology, what can they do, what can they not do, what is the state of the maturity, and how do we think about adopting them for GAO use cases? Right. Yeah, and I mean, that's an interesting one because, yeah, I, th I thought I had heard a lot of agencies consider just banning the use of it right now. Because um, to me, it's just one of those you look at it and you're like, wow, there's, this thing has to have a huge potential. We just have to learn how to use it properly, you know? I don't know. And this is my personal view on this. I think the sure uh, way to guarantee people circumventing that control is by banning it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's uh, human nature right there. Um, so let me get into another little piece of uh, uh, technology here. Just curious what you guys have found. I mean, the distributed ledger, the blockchain kind of thing. I mean, that was pretty hot for a while. Um, How's that going? Are you guys still researching that? Do you, are you finding applications, or maybe it is helpful for, for what we do? For sure. Um, and I'm going to take the, you know, the sort of cryptocurrency use case off the table because yeah. that's not usually a use case for the federal government. Right. Um, but we have a report coming out, actually, in, in a few weeks, really talk about a use case of a distributed ledger technology in something like, a, for example, federal research. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it's not a use case focused publication. It's actually how might we set up a distributed le ledger technology across multiple agencies. So if you think about it, right now, most agencies that are experimenting with blockchain, they're doing it through prototyping phase. So it's contained within their own agency. But for blockchain to ultimately scale, that technology has to transcend not only, for example, not just but all of your partner ecosystem. They have to use the same tech stack. They have to have the same security control. They have to have same um, operational governance, for example. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody has actually explored what does that next step of scaling look like. Mm. So this particular report looks at an implementation of this federal research grant potential use case, um, but across more than just one agency. So in this case, we're partnering under the Joint Financial Management Improvement Program mm -hmm. and specifically working with Bureau of Fiscal Service to say, can we s expand the prototype that Fiscal Service has developed in a way that allows GAO as a separate entity to participate on that distributed ledger activity? Um, so there are certainly technology issues that we have to sort through. There are ATO uh, challenges that we have to sort through. It's hard enough to do ATO within one agency. How do we do that in a parity way across two agencies? Mm -hmm. There are data sharing uh, challenges that we have to sort through. Um, but more importantly, you know, GAO as an agency, our goal on that distributed ledger is different than the goal of Bureau of Fiscal Service. Mm -hmm. right? their, their, their job is to do more of that disbursement function. Yeah. Our job is more of an oversight function. Yep. Yep. But so how do we maintain visibility on those tokens in a way that doesn't put GAO in the business of grant adjudication and vice versa. Mm. Um, so there's some methodological and governance challenges that came along that we had to sort through. Mm. So we think of this as a foundational report that could be helpful to 
inform other entities to think about how they may want to scale and implement a sort of a blockchain solution that transcend their individual agencies. Yeah, and I mean, and there's always the red tape and the laws and the regs and the things, right? I mean, even like something about subrecipient monitoring, there's like legal issues with that or something. So, I mean, yeah, you might come up with a great solution, but, that, you know, you just can't do it for policy reasons or things like that, right? That's exactly right. <coughs> so I think, I think this particular exercise was a useful um, terms of helping us understand those sort of mm -hmm. potential blockers and how yeah. we overcame them. And so, you know, we're very excited about the publication of this report uh, and likely we'll make a sort of announcement more about that in sort of future AGA events. Yeah, no, that's really cool because, I mean, I just want to see, can this work? Whether, you know, put all these policies and things on the side for a minute, but does the technology actually enable you to accomplish what you're trying to do, which is get the money out, monitor it, track it, make sure, you know, the things we need to get done and then if that can be proven, then maybe now we can go to the lawmakers and explain and get things done. Yeah, the short answer is absolutely yes. Yeah. Uh, even on this <coughs> sort of federal research grant prototype that we developed, um, there's been study out there that up to 40% of grants being dispersed are being used for financial reconciliation process. Mm. Coming from NSF, down to Bureau of Fiscal Service, down to individual academic institution, subgrantee, and then roll all the way back up to NSF for reporting purposes. Usually that is at least a year of reconciliation. Hmm. And I don't know about you, but I've never talked to a single principal investigator where they love doing that kind of sort of administrative <laughs> of function. Right. Um, so if we're able to cut down that kind of reconciliation mechanics and inefficiency, mm -hmm. I think the goal is to maximize the federal dollar that are intended for research to be devoted more for research and less on financial reconciliation. Yeah, um, I think that particular point we have proven above and beyond as a possibility. Uh, so instead of s you know, spending 14 months on re financial reconciliation, the nature of a blockchain technology allows that reconciliation done in real time. So uh, I think the productivity gain is alluring. But of course, if you're removing centralized entities such as um, you know, the fiscal service or you know, the Federal Reserve Bank, for example, there are systemic challenges that needs to overcome because our entire ecosystem is built around, uh, for example, ACH network on dispersing, mm -hmm. right? Uh, centralized financial management software that collects all of that information. And so if we're now suddenly having a decentralized way of operating, it's beyond just technology, uh, but there are also, you know, a lot of sort of procedural, um, cultural change management related issues that comes with that that are, in, in my view, sometimes much more difficult to address than just underlying technology. Right. No, it's always, I mean, the technology wants to spring forward and it doesn't stop, but then it's got these institutions and ways of doing things that are the hardest ones to change, right? Exactly right. I mean, I'm even thinking just electric vehicles. That sounds great, but we need charging stations across the country and like the whole infrastructure, you know, and a whole different way of, you know, what if the treasury started having, just throwing it out there, what if we started paying people in, like I said, tokens or something? Well, that's a whole new financial monetary process. I mean, so the technology sounds great, but you got all this other stuff that you have to like, I mean, it takes a lot of you know effort to bring the rest of it forward yeah. along with it. And one example of that is, you know, for us to be clear-eyed about what's types, what's reality, mm. usually blockchain is sort of characterized as immutable. Mm. Well, I don't think anything is 100% foolproof. Right. Right, so under what circumstance can we actually, you know, intentionally manipulate the content of that token? Um, I think that's an important element of that assurance that GAO has to be able to opine.
China. So you know, this has been a fascinating 18-month uh, exercise in sort of close collaboration with OMB, OPM, uh, Fiscal Service for sure, but also GAO team to really sort of systematically address those issues. So it's a pretty beefy report that's coming yeah. out, and, and we're, we're looking forward to sort of driving that conversation forward to say what could blockchain do um, in sort of a, a, a sort of objective and fact-based kind of way. Yeah. I mean, but that one, the AI stuff happening, I mean, all of it, you know, you talk about improper payments or just incorrect payments or preventing fraud or capture, ca you know, finding people who commit it. Seems like the technology's here. It's enticing. It's tantalizing. You know, there's there's a way forward. We can use this to, to get to this state we want to get to. But, you know, like, when is it going to happen and how do we get there? That's all the hard part, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're trying to think about these issues from a different angle. So improper yeah. payments, you know, is a good example of that. You know, from an innovation lab perspective, you know, for us, issue another report on improper payments, which is going to be add to all of the other reports yeah. that are out there. Um, so we're thinking about, hmm, in order to reduce improper payments, the way that financial institutions do it is by sharing data, the mm. different schemes of different login, credential, et cetera. Um, there's some pockets of that within <coughs> the federal government do not pay, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I think login.gov is becoming also that sort of nexus of that data coming in. But what... And, and I think we all know that the challenge in facilitating data sharing, it is not an easy exercise. Right. right? Social Security Administration can't just share desk master file with any agency out there. Mm -hmm. Same thing with IRS data. Mm -hmm. um, we're thinking from an innovation lab perspective, what if we don't actually have to share data, but mm -hmm. still be able to accomplish the kind of analytical goals that we want? Um, might that make a significant dent in the concept of not only improper payments, but other bunch of other sort of potential applications? And so some of that is sort of encryption-related research, but um, we're experimenting with a number of cloud-based managed services today. If we don't actually have to exchange data in terms of right, city, right. could that technically make progress around the concept of data sharing? Because we're not actually sharing data. Yeah. You're just pinging and getting a verification or something like that? That's exactly Yeah, right. I like that. So uh, trying to figure out how that might work, what yeah. are the constraints, or is it analytically rich and worthwhile, or is this you know, pretty straightforward binary, which has its own limitations? Um, so, you know, it, it, again, it's sort of that ethos of experimentation, exploration to say, how might this work? And in a very clear eye way to adopt that as a use case for DAO. Awesome. Well, one last question for you. Um, you know, four years, you said. So what, you know, what are some things you guys are working now or in the, in the near future? Where would you like to see the direction of the lab go? That's a very interesting question. So when I first started, I think necessarily there were some level of ambiguity around what the innovation lab was about. Mm -hmm. What should we focus on? How should we tackle the work? Um, so as I, like I mentioned, it's very much, um, it used to be sort of a startup mentality where there's a lot of uncertainty, but there's certainly a lot of um, sort of that may not necessarily go your way, right? But fortunate enough, I have great team around me. We've always been able to thread the needle in a way that allow us to continue to move forward, continue to grow. Mm -hmm. So this year, we embark on an exercise on the clarity of purpose. Mm -hmm. There are things that inherently, because we can't address all issues for all um, parts of GAO, how do we sort of systematically say no to even interesting ideas? And so part of that is how do we tie the work that we do to GAO strategic plan? How do we tie our work to the kind of value proposition that we can explicitly articulate 
not just technology for the sake of technology. Um, and then how do we make sure that we are focused on what we're supposed to be focusing on mm -hmm. and not on what we're not supposed to be focusing on, right? So this year we went through the process of <coughs> that clarity of purpose. I think in FY24, and I'm being a little cheeky here, mm. the theme is you ain't seen nothing yet. Mm. So now that we have process maturity, now that we have scale, I think we're about ready to um, you know, press the accelerator in a way that allows us to put a lot more of these prototype solution in a sort of production environment yeah. in a way that really um, can benefit not only GAO, but also by extension sort of Congress's oversight capacity. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Well, this has been fascinating. I knew it would be, and I appreciate you you coming here, Taka. This is really great stuff, uh, and you're going to keep doing, you know, AGA events and things, right? Let us know what's happening in the future here, right? Absolutely. Looking forward to seeing your audience on the AGA Row Show. All right. Well, that was Accountability Talks with AGA. This is Paul Marshall signing off for another podcast. See you next time. <laughs>